cockpit door down. Take the two pilots that have already made the sacrifice so that you can face this challenge. Dispose of them on the cockpit. Control into a nosedive, Hulk Hogan. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. Hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. Final beat. His lungs breathe their final breath. I am Ultimate Warrior. You are the Ultimate Warrior fans. And the spirit of Ultimate Warrior will run forever. All right, everyone. It's time for the Wrestling Asylum episode three. It's another nostalgia episode, another episode where we look back at the best moments from wrestling history what our favourite memories were, and stuff of that nature. This is me, Paul. I've got Kurt with me, and Rocco with me again, like last time. He's okay, boys? Yeah, good. Yeah, okay, let's just get straight into it. I enjoyed the last uh, podcast we did. Uh, I I enjoyed it last time a lot. I think I'm going to enjoy it this time again, talking about wrestling from the past. This week, we're going to talk about our favourite wrestling finishers. You know, those signature moves that wrestlers put on to close the show and get everyone jumping up and down. I've got a lot of favourites. You know, things like the stunner, the people's elbow. The more ridiculous the finisher, the more popular it is, it seems. What do you guys think? What about you, Kate? What's one of the finishers that you used to love watching? I think the one that stands out for me is... Um, Jake Snake Roberts DDT I think he made f- famous that move it's sad to see that move he's no longer a finisher you know you see it all the time now you know guys hit, hit DDT all the time and it's he does nothing he doesn't even get a one count but I think even when Jake still like wrestles on the independent circuit I mean God knows how old he is and he's overweight and he was boozed up but the fans are still chanting for the DDT they want to see it. and I just think you know he He's someone who that the move is everything, and um, the way he set it up, you know, he'd get their army, twist it round, do the short clothesline, do the little wiggle of the finger, which signalled the DDT coming up, and you know, what I mean, all these years later, people still want to see him do it, even though wrestlers are doing it all the time. It's still, you know, it's still good to see Jake hit the DDT because he was the best at doing it, and for me, that's why it's one of my favourites because it, it's it stands the test of time. 
yeah, it's a it's a shame when old finishers that were famous at one point just become basic moves now for a lot of other wrestlers. You know, stuff like the sharpshooter. That was when that was like the unbreakable hole, wasn't it? Sort of thing. If Gratar got you in that, then it was at the end of the match. There was no way you could ever escape. And yeah, a bit like the um, not... figure four leg lock in the nineteen eighties as well. I mean, oh, Rick Flair yeah. locked you on that. That was it. But now. It doesn't. I mean, I don't think you see as many su- submissions as you did then. I mean, there's not many. There's a, f- there's a few, but the, the leg ones seem to have been a bit outdated now. They always fight out of the figure four now, don't they? Or, or get to the ropes. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very rare. I'll tell you what you don't ever see now, Dave. What, like, you know, in the, when I watch WWE nowadays, you never ever see a sleeper. No. Or bear hug. bear hug, or you know the one where they sort of like they get them and they sort of like basically as if they're doing like like trying to touch their toes from the side. So they sort of like they wrap their leg around the other one and then they put their arm under his armpit and it basically stretches out their like their side, their rib cage. Do you remember that one? Yeah. They always used to do it. And they, and they used yeah. to hold on to the ropes. The, the geezer who was doing the hold held on to the ropes. That guy like, would always hold the ropes when the ref weren't looking. Yeah, yeah. But what was that called? I can't, I can't even remember the name of it. But, um, oh, God. The abdom- abdominal stretch. Abdominal stretch, that's it, mate. But them three, I can't remember the last time. Because if you look at, like, the old matches, they always had the same sort of... Uh, um type of type of uh you know thing to them where you know the feeling that the good guy would attack the bad guy would attack the bad guy through the middle of the match would would either grab him in like i say either a sleeper bear hug or the one where they had the bloke sitting on the on the floor and they kneel down behind him with their knee in, in the middle of his back and they pull it pulling his neck towards them but that would always feel like three or four minutes of the match, wasn't it? Until he sort of like dropped his arm twice and then the third time shake it. But you, you don't see like them holds, do you? And the thing is, a sleeper was a really like, when that hit, there was like the commentators would really, you know, hype it up and sell it and say, oh my God, you know, and they would look, like fall, fall asleep for a while. You know, someone like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior would do their little, you know, routine afterwards. But, yeah, I mean, you don't see sleep, but the big, the bear hug was one of the moves that all the big guys used to do, you know. And the commentators again would would sell it that the, the, the usually the good guy's back is like literally broken from the bear hug and the pain of it, and how he's not submitting. But them moves, they just they're just gone now, aren't they? The Boston Crab's another one. Well, I'll tell you something about that. Do you remember? Um... The Walls of Jericho. When he was in WCW and he used to get people in the Walls of Jericho, he used to sort of like get them down. He used to sort of, he used to flip them over and then he used to half turn them. So they'd more, the whole more pressure back. on their neck, weren't it? Yeah, yeah. So they'd, they'd be sort of like laying on their sort of like chest and he'd have their legs like um, in the air and he, he was sort of standing up. So he was sort of contorting all of their spine. But now when he does it, and, and obviously for years, now it's just a Boston crab. Because he sits back. He actually sits down and sits back. 
it don't. It used to sort of like if you watch it in WCW, it was like a a half turn where he could he could sort of. I think he did used to kneel on the on the sort of like bottom of their back. But if we're talking about like moves that are no longer seen. If you think of the pile driver, that's like been basically outlawed by WWE. You very you don't see a pile driver anymore because of the dangers of it. And to think that was a move that was used for years, and you know it's surprising that the Undertaker still got around with the um, Tombstone for so long. But even he like changed it and had like the choke slam and the um, power bomb. Yeah. Um, speaking of pile drivers, have you ever seen a guy called Petey Williams? He was in TNA for a little while, and he had a finisher called the Canadian Destroyer. Yeah, and it's basically him. Do he does a flip, Flips and then a, and, and then a pile driver. It's absolutely amazing how he manages to do it, and you'd never get away with it in WWE. Absolutely no way. And it's it's probably best that no one does do it because it does look very dangerous. But when he successfully does it, it looks absolutely amazing. Have you ever saw the? Um... The greatest selling of a pile driver ever, uh, Van Rob Van Dam. There's a there's a oh, yeah. there's a clip on YouTube where he gets pile drived and he his head literally bounces about three feet up the air and it it just it's an incredible sell on his part and the crowd go absolutely crazy because it just makes it look so so much better to be honest. Yeah, well, he's uh, always got a. And I was just—it uh, was another little bit about Rob Van Dam. He's always been a great seller. I think one time Randy Orton gave him an RKO, and it looked like he actually snapped his neck the way he actually landed. Because the whole point of the match was he was basically going to injure Rob Van Dam, and the match would get stopped because the referee thought Rob Van Dam couldn't continue. But when he hit him with that RKO, and it looked so gruesome for a couple of minutes, a lot of people in the crowd actually thought that he was really hurt. Because, you know, when he gets hit by it, he's just got to, you know, lie unconscious on the floor and make it look like he's been shot. And the referee's like leaning over him saying, oh, Rob, you're OK. Are you OK? Come on, somebody get help. Somebody get help. A lot of people actually took it seriously because that's how well he sold the move. Didn't um, Rob Van Dam, though, don't you get a bit of stick? Like uh, the, the premise that he, he, he dodges his moves and he's a bit like he's not, you know, he sort of like hurts the other guys. Don't, don't. Is that a... He's an old ECW guy, isn't he? So he obviously works quite rough. They're a bit stiff, aren't they? They don't really care about that, do they? But no. I think, think about finishing moves as well. You get some um, really stupid ones that just look ridiculous. I mean, especially in the 80s, I'd say. But remember Dusty Rhodes? He'd have the bionic elbow. And it was just so... It was just pathetic, really. I mean, if you saw it now, you'd just laugh. But that, that was... Yeah, that was... that was. Um, I mean, if we talk... If we go through... I mean... As you said, the Jake the Snake. If we go through the sort of like eras, WWF wise, the short arm clothesline and DDT, like you say, was just the whole like the build up, like you say, Kurt, the short arm clothesline, the little wiggle of the finger. It was just it was like, iconic. Um, and same, uh, you know, what I was trying to get to with a sleeper was like the million dollar dream. Yeah, you know, the money in the mouth afterwards. <laughs> it had like yeah. little little things to go with it. It's like you know, it's like um I think the finishing move was more anticipated then. Now you see them all the time, but if you think of the Macho Man's elbow off the top right, I mean when he prepared for that he raised his two arms, you know, the crowd was just waiting for it. It was like it's just I think it's like I think we've spoke about it before, but I think it's 
it's the way WWE are now. It's like overkill, too much. You know, it's just too much for everyone, I think. And when you've seen a guy hit a finisher, you know, five times, you know, when we used to watch it, you know, and we enjoyed it more, a finisher, that was it. You know, once you hit the finisher, there ain't, you know, unless there was interference or unless she was the undertaker and you kicked out, everyone else was practically dead on the canvas, you know, and that's, I think that's changed now. You know, if, you know, Hulk Hogan was another one who'd kick out, but, you know, if an undertaker hit a tombstone or a Jake hit a DDT or, you know, Ultimate Warrior hit the Gorilla Press, that, you know, the fans knew because once that happened, it was getting ready for the, the final curtain, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. unless you're the Rock at WrestleMania, because how many stunners did he used to kick out of at WrestleMania? But he, he, About five or six he always, every match. He always took the stunner the weird way, didn't he? He used to get stunned, and he used to do like a little backward flick, flip, like type roll thing, and he'd end up over the other side of the ring. It was, I mean, it looked good, but it was it's, just weird. It was, it was like he got hit by a missile and got like thrown up into the air, wasn't it? Yeah. Or like some wind had just blown him backwards. I know. But like you said, like overkill, I think that's what it is, because... Years ago, it was you see them do their do their finisher. Let's so let's say like Rick Rude with a rude awakening. He'd do it on Wrestling Challenge on you know some slobby geezer like a postman. They just put in a pair of wrestling shorts, and that was it. And, but and, I mean, he would finish obviously even you sort of like your shitty people like Tito Santana. He'd finish them with it. But the only people that would possibly kick out of it was Hogan or Warrior. Uh, you know, but then, as you say, when it got through to the Attitude Era and nowadays, I mean, nowadays, Brock will do the F5, he'll do three of them, and Cena will still kick out. Do you know what I mean? It's the same with Cena as well. I mean, I do understand why they do it, because it does seem to, it creates a lot of drama when, you know, there's a few inches from the guy's, the referee's hand touching for the third time. But I think they've fallen into the trap of thinking that, you know, loads of kick-outs of finishers makes it a good match. You know, they can have just a shit match for 15 minutes, but have, like, three Cena's finishing moves, three F5s, and suddenly it's a great match. I think, yeah, it adds drama, but that's not really... A, it doesn't make it a good match. I mean, but for me, you know, a finisher, they've got to be sold more than what they are now, I think. I think a finisher has got to be... You know, you hit it, and unless something... You know, someone gets in the ring or the ref gets knocked out, that's got to be... I mean... When Yokozuna, for instance, hit the the bonsai drop, that was it. You know, the guy was dead. He was, you know, it doesn't matter what he did. There was no getting up from that. And that's what I think. You know, the whole leading up to it. You know, he'd, he'd do his what was it, small and drop or belly to belly, and then he'd drag him over, and you just knew, oh god, this guy guy's going to get his chest crushed. But, yeah, but that, it's a loss. Go on, Rocco. Come on, Paul. Someone been bonsai dropped. Yeah, I have. Sorry, me, me computer was it was on mute. Sorry, no, just, what I was going to say was I'll just write that down so I know how to edit it here. Gone. Yeah, um, it's just it's a lost art finishes, isn't it? Shawn Michaels is the last guy I can remember who used to do it really well. Because do you remember when he going to hit speech and music? He would stand in the corner and he would bang his feet, and the crowd would count with him. Mm. Sort of thing, yeah. and yeah. It was a lot. It was just a lot of anticipation for it, wasn't it? That's what, and you knew if, if he hit it, then it was he was going to win. But now guys just seem to hit the finishers out of nowhere. That's what I mean. Uh, for me, I mean, I, I like the anticipation, like you say. You know, the foot stomping, a sign. You know, 
it's like say with Bret Hart, he didn't really have a sign, but you knew he was building up to it. The way he would work on the legs or the back, you know, he'd do his back break, he'd do his, um, he'd drag him off to the bottom rope, put the leg on it, you know, smash it a few times, take him off to the ring post. So you knew he was leading up to it. The, the Undertaker would do a choke slam, and then do his like slip throat gesture. You know, Diesel or Kevin Nash would do his, you know, arm raised. You know, they, or, you know, they all have their little either they either do a move, you know, Razor Ramon would do his fall away slam if you remember that and then that signal like the razor's edge they'd either do a move or they'd do like a sign you know there'd, there'd be something that you know you knew it was coming and I just think the anticipation is not there anymore like I said I mean some finishes would just come out of nowhere and sometimes that instant factor that is good because it you know it can come out of nowhere and shock you but I still like the the way they used to do it to be honest maybe that's just the way we, we grew up with it I suppose Mm. Even The Rock with the people's elbow. Now, that's another finisher that on the surface of it looks really, really ridiculous. But it, the, anticip the anticipation of it is what made it amazing because he'd do everything so well. He'd stand over you, he'd kick your arm into position, he'd look at the camera with the eyebrow, wouldn't he? And he'd take his sweatband off and he'd do his little, you know, routine. Like, fans used to love it. I remember watching it at home going berserk and people in the arena would be going bananas because you knew... If he hit this move, then you're going to get the good ending. Whereas now, I remember Brock Lesnar or John Cena are good examples with their finishes. All he's got to do is just get you up on his shoulders, and it's then he hits it, and then it's that's it. You know, there's no five minute build up, there's no drama, there's no anticipation. It just he just seems to hit it as if he's just hitting the clothesline. Do you know what I mean? Like the whole another thing they don't do enough of now. I don't think is. In matches, you used to get the good guy. He'd try and hit his finisher about two or three times, and the bad guy would escape or block it a few times, and then he'd finally hit it at the end and win. Now they don't seem to do that at all, sort of thing. You don't see... Um, you do get it a little bit, but I don't think it's done properly. You get Brock Lesnar gets someone up on his shoulders and someone gets away from it. But you now you think, well, if you get even if Brock Lesnar hits the F five, so what? The guy's probably going to kick out anyway because it's too early into the match for it to be over. You know, you shouldn't be looking to. There shouldn't be a finisher in a match for the first ten minutes. No way. But, but that's what I mean. I mean, you're, you're spot on. And what you said before about overkill, like that's what he's like. When you see a finisher now, early in the match, you know that's not going to be. But even later in the match. But as you said, like, it used to be, like, if you see Shawn Michaels doing his finisher, or if he did his finisher, 99 times out of 100, you, that was the end of the match. So if, oh, well, not 99 times out of 100, but let's say, you know, 9 times out of 10, which is 90 times out of 100, um, he would do it, you would expect to be over. So when the guy kicks out, you know, probably a bit like the match at WrestleMania 25 with The Undertaker, you thought, that's it, he's done his move, that's it, it's over. And then when he kicked out, it was a shot. But when you watch matches now where they're constantly kicking out of each other's finishes two or three times, it, it, it lessens the, the impact. If you do the same thing that's really shocking all the time, it, it doesn't become shocking anymore. Do you know what I mean? I think for me as well, with finishes that, you know have a, like, a long impression are ones that you've never seen before and they you know then they're, they're the like, start of it if you think of you know he, in WWE he was ridiculously brought in as flash flunk 
but in the, uh, WCW and uh, ECW he was two called Scorpio and he done the 450 splash and I'd never seen that before I, I believe he was the first guy to do it there might have been someone else maybe a luchador maybe somewhere who did it but he was the first like quite big guy I'd ever saw do it and you know to do that what he did off the top rope was just incredible Mark Mero did it as well the same kind of move the 450 when he you know, on the top rope, he jumps forward and flips over a couple of times and lands on the guy. I mean, that was incredible. Bam Bam Bigelow with a flying headbutt off the top rope to see a guy of, like, what, almost 400 pounds, you know, fly off the top rope because that looked believable as well. You know, if that hit, you know, Chris Benoit did it but and Dynamite Kid did it, but when a guy that size did it, it just looks even more, you know, brutal and vicious. Same with, like, uh, Big Van Vader or Vader as he was in WWE. You know, if he hit the Vader bomb, it... Or, or the Vader moonsault, which was ridiculous for a big man. You know, they looked they looked even more better with a, a big guy doing it. And you, it's, you know, it's hard to get the big guys to do the things that they could do. But when you see something off the top rope, and I, don't, I don't think you see as many finishes off the top rope now. But before, you, they, I think they would, you know, all the cameras would be flashing and they'd be even more special, I think. You know, that would be another... Uh, uh, you know, another podcast for another day like the best big guys i mean vader was i thought vader and bigelow were were, were big guys but that were like really agile but um yeah i know what you mean about two cold scorpio and the splash but then obviously van damme done a splash didn't he and then eddie done a, a frog splash so it's very hard nowadays a bit like anything with music you can't sort of come up with new genres that we've got what we've got there and you know and it's a bit like finishes it's not very many innovative new ones i mean every sort of like finisher you can do there's only so much you can do with a person with two arms and two legs doing to another person with two arms and two legs as you say unless you bring in other factors like off the top rope or things like that but um i mean if i can you know if we think back i mean what would you say what would you say is your favorite off the top rope finisher um um probably the five star frog splash by rob van dam it was basically the frog splash but he did it slightly different where i think he jumped higher in the air and stretch this body out a bit differently. You see, there's a move by Two Cold Scorpio. It's on YouTube. I can't, at the moment, think of what it's actually called. It's a leg drop off the top rope, but it's a 450 splash leg drop. So he, he jumps in the air, somersaults twice, and lands. Or he does it backwards. I can't remember, but he lands with a leg. And it, I've never seen it done ever since then, but to, I mean, to see it is incredible. So that would be one of my favourites. No, no, no votes for the uh, Legion of Doom? Oh, that was a good move. Yeah, that, that's the best tag team move I've ever yeah. seen. It's just a game move really like that, though. They've been, they've been <laughs> cheapened, haven't they? The Doomsday Device. I mean, for that's that. Actually, that's a good uh, topic, though, as well. Tag team finishing moves. You don't see many of them now. Whereas, you know, the Doomsday Device was one. Um, the Heart Smoking Guns the, had one as the well. Heart Foundation had one. Can't remember what it was called. Yeah, or uh, some of them used to do. Um, like the spike pile driver as well, where one would be on the, the second or the top rope and he'd, you know, spike in with the uh, thingy. But uh, the Doomsday device, I mean, for its time, I think that was 
Wow, that was well ahead of its time, I thought. A 3D was a good one as well, especially when they yeah. put you through something. The 3D was pretty much a rip-off of the Doomsday device, wouldn't it, really? Like, one on the other geezer's shoulder and then he he come off the top. But, you know, obviously that's where they got the idea for that. But both very good. What was the Nasty Boys finish? I'm trying to remember. I think it was similar to that Art Foundation one you're talking about, wasn't it? I can't remember what theirs was, to be honest. Um, they never seem I can't to... remember the name, but I know what they did. Jim Neidhart kind of give you a bear hug, and Bret Hart would run off the ropes and give you a clothesline directly in the face. Yeah, it was pretty rubbish. It is rubbish now that you think about it, but back in the day, it was you know it was another one of those moves. If they hit it, then the match was over. And you know why there's no good tag team finishes nowadays? Because there ain't no fucking tag teams. There ain't... So, is that... It's, it, that's that's another one that's that's another thing that started out really, hasn't it? Tag team wrestling. But do you remember the um, smoking guns one? What was that called? Now the um, you know he'd like get him into like a, one of them would get him into a sidewalk slam, and the other one would leg drop him off the top rope, and that was that was really good as well. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, Trying to remember demolitions as well. Um, um it wasn't a tag team. Um finisher sort of thing but I remember it was a move that they used to use a lot do you remember what the Hardy Boys used to do where it was, wasn't anything special I think they'd throw you in the corner and one of them would uh, kneel down and the other guy would jump off the guy's back and you know slam into you it was you know it doesn't look it's not special but it was a move that they were using and no one else seemed to be using it was like a signature thing but who did the um, you know one would stand in the corner the other guy would get on top but he'd stand on his shoulders and he'd like do a somersault off his shoulders as he was holding his hands I think maybe the Hardy Boys did that a few times as well yeah like a leg drop yeah the no votes for Hornswoggle and Finley (laughs) and and, Finley uh, used to pick him up and and just throw him just dash him around (laughs) um, I mean I mean let's rope finishers I mean let's go um, what about sort of like submission finishers what what, what would you What's your favourite submission finishes, Paul? If you had to pick one, um, <laughs> I used to like the the cripple crossface by Benoit, but after what after and now that I know what he did with it, it's, it kind of feels a bit horrible now. The crossface was one of mine, but you know for understandable reasons that you don't see it so much anymore. I don't know whether it's been banned or whether guys just don't feel comfortable using it, but it was a finisher I used to well, like. But. Daniel Bryan uses the same kind of thing, what it's called, the yes lock. And I think if someone else did it the other week, I saw, but they just call it the crossface now. Yeah, they can't call it the crippler crossface because... Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, I don't think he's been using it as much lately, Bryan, as he's not, he's, you know, I don't think he's used it as much as he, as he used to, but... Um, yeah, you definitely don't see any of the guys who must have known them while using it. Do you know guys like who were there seven or eight years ago when he died? Who are still there now? There aren't many of them, but the few that are, you definitely don't see them using any moves like that. Mike, what about you, Kurt? Submission finishes. You got a favourite one or I, well, I'm going I'm gonna go back a bit further now. What about the Iron Sheik with the um, camel clutch? Yeah, yeah. I do like the Iron Sheik. I mean, that was a 
you know, uh, that was you know, to see that the move in the day. I mean, that was a I think that was a pretty good move for the the day. I mean, things like the sharpshooter and the figure four were obviously good ones as well. I mean, it's hard to think of a, a really good one that stands out though. I, uh, mean, I think someone mentioned it earlier on, the million dollar dream. Yeah, what about I know it's not technically a submission, but it's not a pin pinning finisher either. What about the mandible claw? I mean, that came out of nowhere, really. I've never saw that before. When just the normal version, or when he put that fucking sock on his hand? No, the the proper mankind, evil mankind version with the little tape on his hands, not that sock thing. <laughs> I mean, that was quite that was quite for its time. I thought when WWE was more kid friendly, I'd say that was quite. Uh, a weird finishing move, you know, to have a guy have his fingers down the guy's mouth and, you know, basically be, like, suffocating him and, like, n- putting his he- pressure on all the nerves under the tongue and stuff. It was a really weird yeah. move. Easy to do. Can't though. use it anymore, though, because it gave teenage girls the wrong idea. But... <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know some girls that would probably be alright with it, because they've, they've, um, they've sorted out their, uh, well, we'll give Mick Foley a ring and see if he can help them be a personal trainer. What's the what's the um, gag reflex? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, now another. I mean, that's a mission one. I'll, I'll go with the Million Dollar Dream now, like old school. That was you know. And I'll, before we say favorite finishers, or I don't know, should we do favorite, or should we say just like high impact ones we've done rope ones and submission ones anyone got a favorite sort of like high impact one or uh, i used to like the um a lot of people don't like it because they prefer the tombstone but i didn't mind the um power bomb that undertaker used to do the last ride because it was a bit different because he wouldn't just have you up on his shoulders like you know a lot of people do he'd actually lift you up and show quite a bit of physical strength yeah, yeah, I think he'd grab your waistband of your tights and he'd actually sort of... It was like a mix between what the Razor's Edge, what Scott Hall used to do, and a powerbomb. Do you remember it? Yeah, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, I didn't mind I didn't mind that for a bit because when he wasn't the dead man anymore, when he was doing the biker thing, the tombstone didn't really suit his character. I know he still used it sometimes, but, you know, that that's the, that the tombstone manoeuvre suits his dead man persona sort of thing. When he was just being the... Big Evil or the American Badass, whatever he was called. I thought it was quite a good change, to be honest. But as you, when you said earlier, Kurt, about uh, pile drivers and that they don't do them anymore, I mean, do you remember, I'm trying to think who, I'm, I'm sure I've got matches where Hogan got pile-drived, um, and some people used to do them. Now, I don't know if this was dependent on the weight of the, the guy that they were doing it to, but some of them used to do it when they used to get his head between the legs, and when they used to lift him up, they basically used to just sort of like slowly fall backwards onto their arse. Yeah, that was like a Jerry Jerry the King Lawler pile driver. He he did that, and the, it was like a slow slow falling down one. Terry Funk did it as well. I mean, it, it still looked good for the time, but I think it like um, people started taking it to another level with the more you know the speed up version. Remember the ones they used to jump where they used to like properly jump in the air. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you, you don't really see. I mean, 
I think I think a few wrestlers over the years have obviously got hurt, and it's it's just not worth it to the the company. I suppose having the all the the, the, the lawsuit and the problems from it, but I mean it's that's why I'm surprised Undertaker got away with it. But Undertaker obviously, uh, people obviously um, they they trust him yeah. a lot more. I suppose we're doing it. He's been doing it all his no one, all his life, and obviously he's one of the best workers. Yeah. No um, one tells the Undertaker to change his routine, do they? Really? No, and I think you know if. It's like there's a move, you know. Like, do you know AJ Styles? Yeah, yeah. He does. He does a move called the Styles yeah. Clash. Now, to, to be honest, it's it, it's not a very good move. It doesn't look too good. He basically gets them into like uh, I'm trying to. I think he gets them in like a power bomb, but he drops them so their head goes between his legs, and then he like he basically jumps down a bit like he goes into like a pedigree kind of thing. But he doesn't look as good as a pedigree. That's another great finisher as well, the pedigree. But he's botched that a few times. But apparently, it's it's not really his fault. It's the guys who, because he's been working in New Japan, they don't apparently they've not been in the right position for it. But he's botched that a few times. There's been calls to ban that move because obviously the neck is right there. And but it's just with them kind of moves with the high impact on on the neck, especially for big guys taking them as well. It's, it's so dangerous. But yeah, just speaking of the pedigree, I mean, I think that's a great move. He he, he kind of changed it though again, probably for safety reasons. He'd, he'd usually go down fully, holding their arms behind their back. But obviously, maybe for safety reasons, he, he lets their hands go now to protect their, so they can land first. And you know, obviously, if you've got no hands and you go face first, that's you know really dangerous if the guy makes a slight mistake. If you look yeah. at the Undertaker's um, tombstone, I mean, if you look some of them, because obviously for maximum, well, not for maximum impact, but it's normally facing the TV cameras. So you get, a, with the pile drive, you can't see how much of the head, if any of it, it's the floor or anything like that. But with the with the tombstone, you can see where the head is in regards to when he lands on his knees, where, where the, what hits first, his knees or the or their head. And some of them, like their, their head is literally by his waist. And, you know, he sort of like just falls down especially if it's someone heavy like Kane who he's done it to people like that. Yeah. You know, you can see their head is nowhere near the mat. I'll tell you what, watch um, watch his match with Hulk Hogan at Survivor Series when he wins the WWF title for the first time. Ric Flair puts a chair in the ring. They make the mistake of the cameraman being right in for it, obviously to sit, let the audience see the chair. But because he's too close... You can see that obviously the Undertaker doesn't want to really tombstone you onto a chair, and he's just absolutely miles away from it, and the camera catches it fully. I mean, if you go and watch that, the ending to that, it's it's one of the worst botches really in terms of mistake, and it, you know there's no way you can to kids watching they'd see straight away what his head's nowhere near it, and it, that's why I think they've got to make sure he's in the right area to do it. Yeah, I, I've watched that match many a time, Kurt. I know exactly what you mean. You're spot on, that's but... That's one of the ones I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the thing. I mean, they got they got to sell it, but we've usually, you know, he'd drop to his knees, and their head would be even if it's only slightly above above, you know, his knees. Then they're not, not going to touch. But obviously, for whatever reason, they he messed up on that one, or Hogan messed up. I don't know. But he, yeah, it didn't look too, it didn't look good that was. But most of the time, off he's done. The tombstone and it looks pretty good. I mean, guys like Shawn Michaels have took it really well. I think. Well, I think I think another one that I had in mind that where he sort of like not bodged it was WrestleMania eight when he fought Jake the Snake. I think he gave him one outside the ring, 
yeah, he had to be careful there. Didn't yeah, he? yeah. You see, his head was nowhere near the the, the, the floor, so <clears throat> that was another one. I uh, think I remember him giving the rock a tombstone on top of a car once in the attitude there. But again, you can blatantly see the rock's head doesn't hit the car's roof. You see, but with with the tombstone, there's like Undertaker's version. He he like he like goes onto his toes, doesn't he? To, he he goes onto his toes, then does it. Whereas Kane's version, he like drives them down. But with Kane's version, I think it's even more. You can see that their head doesn't touch the floor at all. With Undertaker's the way he does it, it looks it looks good for most part. But with Kane's one, he drives them. I mean, a lot of the times they're not even like holding onto his. They're not they're not close in with the Undertaker's one. Obviously, they're right in between his legs. But with Kane's one, he just has them there and he does it. I mean, it's a good impact, but I think it doesn't look as good as the Undertaker's one. No. So let's 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 have a quick uh, quick fire. Let's have under fire. Un, sorry, not under fire. Under under appreciated finishers. Who, who would you say? Just a quick one. Who who's did you never got much thing, but you you liked it. Um, I don't know if this counts. I'd say the pedigree. Because I don't know whether it, you can class as underappreciated, but I think it's just because a lot of guys don't like Triple H. They don't like to admit that that's a really that's a really famous move, a really signature move. If someone hits that move, you think that's Triple H's finisher. That's Triple H, and that's the end of the match. Not so much anymore, but when Triple H was at his peak years, there weren't many people who kicked out with pedigree. If he hit the pedigree, it was all over, as we've been saying, and that's the key, so... I always liked the pedigree personally, but another one I liked as well was oh, I forget what his name is now. Cool. Oh, come come back to me, uh, oh. Kurt. It's hard to think underappreciated ones. I mean, I think you mentioned it earlier. The Rude Awakening, I think, was well ahead of its time. I mean, nowadays that kind of neck breaker is seen, you know, every match. I think at the time, I mean, that looked like a pretty devastating move, I thought. And when he used to hit it, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's something that you, you'd call a rude awakening. You didn't see it anywhere else. And I think that's a good point that about the pedigree. You know, if another guy uses that move, no matter who it is, where he is, it's always called the pedigree. And I think that's a, a good way to look at how much impact a move has had on the, the, the business, to be honest. In terms of underappreciated, it's, it's hard to think yeah. off the top of my head. Um, uh, I remember the guy I was talking about. Um, do you remember Chris Jericho's move where he'd do a flip off the rope, a uh, moonsault? Yeah. I always like that one because it's you've got to be really athletic to do that. Because the ropes are really thin. It's, it's um, <clears throat> Not many guys could run onto it, even at speed, and do a full-on moonsault. Because there's nothing really to kick off of. It's not like it's a wall. It's just a really thin rope. And that could bo- that could be botched so easily. I don't ever remember him botching it because you could easily miss the rope and hit your crown jewels on the middle rope, couldn't you? Do you I mean, just uh, while you're on that subject, um, I've seen it as a clip, a little vine on Twitter. It was up, it was up there yesterday. I'll try and find it and repost it. I think it's a it's a match. It looks like it's between X Pac and someone and. He, fl- he throws him off the ropes and the bloke runs past X-Pac in the middle of the ring and he he, he doesn't he jumps through the air with the idea of landing either his 
bouncing his feet off the middle rope or landing like he's, he's, he's bum on it. But he completely misses it and just goes through the ropes. So he basically runs and chucks himself feet first between the top and middle rope. Oof. I'll post it out. It, it, it's, and the, I think the thing is, he says, like, you know, and who said wrestling, you know, wrestling's fake. But the bloke, he tries to bounce off the ropes, but he just completely misses them both and just basically throws himself feet first. I'll post it up. But, um, no, you took mine away there because I was going to say the rude awakening. I'll tell you what. Tell you what finisher I liked, and we talked earlier in the show about you know like the setup and everything. What about Earthquake when he would actually bounce on the um, the ring about four times, and then he would you know his partner would be in the middle of the ring landing for he'd run it did a bit like the people's elbow he'd run on one rope, run across the other, and then he'd just come across and just sit on him. I thought that was a, a pretty devastating move for the time. It, it was, and that that summer Sam ninety when he fought Hogan. I remember that was like I say, I think that was the first pay per view I I had, and um. And I watched that because he he supposedly broken Hogan's ribs when he'd done it earlier. He wanted to destroy Hulk. Yeah, I mean, but that he was that on the Brother of Love show, wasn't it? He did it as yeah, well. Yeah, that that was so Hogan could go away and make suburban commando, wouldn't it? That was the. Um, <laughs> but but I'm going to say it now before anyone else says it. Um, I mean, underappreciated. I I was going to say Rick Rude, also the Honky Tonk Man. Do you remember his one where he sort of like grabbed them in a headlock, grabbed their arm, and then he done like three swings, like one, two, three, and then he spun, he spun them over. Can't remember what it was called now. Do you remember the honky tonk man's finish? The, the shake, the shake, That's rattle the and one, roll shake, rattle and roll. Um, and but I'd say favourite finishers. I'm going to say it now before anyone else nicks it. Um, Frankensteiner, Scott Steiner. Before Wasn't he... that like a Hurricane Rana where he put his legs like over your shoulders? Yeah, and he... It's what it's, it's what he used to do before he became Big Papa Pump when he couldn't really do it anymore because he was too big. Exactly. But when he, <laughs> first, when he got on the roids. When he first did that, yeah. looked awesome. Like the Hurricane Rana is basically, yeah, it's the same thing. But when he did it at that time in sort of like 89, 90, <clears throat> Because he was he was a big fella anyway, wasn't he? He was he was, you know, he was big anyway. But the, the agility and obviously, I mean that that move relies on the guy he's doing it to basically doing a somersault, doesn't it? Um, but he used to look brilliant. Some of the some of the times he did that on people, it looked really, you know, it it was it was unique at the time, wasn't it? It was it was the first, you know, it was the first sort of like. Finisher of that type, so that I'll say that. And a notable mention for the Berserkers finisher, which used to be he used to pick them up like a baby and throw them over the ropes and win by count out. So he can never be WWF champion. Then. <laughs> what was the what was the Reaper man's? I don't think I ever saw him hit one. To be honest, um, he used to have a. Toe rope, didn't he? But his finisher, I can't. Um, he never used to win many matches, did he? So he never used he, to. No, he I used to. I, I've got to be honest. I did. I've got a soft spot for the repo man. Um, what's mine? Is mine? What's yours? It's mine too. 
Yeah, that was Repo, who, who, yeah. who was actually Smash from Demolition, if you, uh, yep. if you want to look back. So... A lot of a lot of finishes were just novelty, weren't they? Moves that you knew they weren't going to hit or they weren't going to hit properly. Do you remember when um, the, I think it was Hurricane Helms? He kept trying to do the choke slam to big wrestlers, and it would just never work. What about the um, the Shattered Dreams by Goldust? Yeah, I mean that was a pretty brutal that's one. A good one. I do like Goldust. I've got a soft spot for Goldust. I think he was. I think we, we that could be a topic in future as well, like underdeveloped characters or characters who could have been pushed more. I think Goldos, when he came in, especially for the time, very bizarre, weird. I mean, creepy guy, you know, play the easy guys, he's straight, he's all mind games, whatever. I think they could have pushed him. I know he was Intercontinental Champion pretty much straight away, but I think they could have pushed him more and got him into more main events, to be honest. A bit like Mankind was. Yeah, I liked Goldos' character because it was just so... It got WWF in a lot of trouble at the time from like anti-gay group from sorry no, um from gay rights groups who you no know, didn't who said that it was um anti that it was homophobic and stuff like that but i thought it was funny to be honest and i still think it's funny now when i go back and watch it because the guy he's dusty Rhodes' son isn't he dustin rhodes who plays yeah. him and he is one of the most hick guys you will ever see like he's he's a real redneck sort of thing i've seen him interviewed and you could, you could not fathom a guy like that doing the stuff he does, dressed as gold dust. Well, he, he didn't like it. I saw an interview with him. Well, he said, you know, he phoned him up to explain it and he wasn't sure, but I think he, you know, he saw that he was getting over with it and he, he was doing it well. He's been so. doing it 20 years, so he, he must like it to yeah. some extent. But he's got his other son doing it now as well. <laughs> Stardust, doesn't it? Blimey. Jesus yeah. Christ. Oh, dear. Now, our favourite wrestling themes... So there's theme tunes, yeah, like their songs. Yeah, and... entrance musics, yeah. There's a lot of them. There's been a lot of memorable ones, oh. isn't there? I like a lot of wrestling songs, you know, some because they're just really cool, some because they're really funny. One from the cool one I liked was Drummer Goldbergs. I, I really like Goldbergs because it's all psychology, isn't it? If I was actually coming to the ring for a real fight, I think that's the music I'd use because... If you're, if someone's coming out to that music and you're in the ring, you are gonna shit yourself because it's just a big, loud, fudding noise over and over again. I, and to come out with all the police, I used to, it used to remind me a lot of when Mike Tyson comes to the ring, even though Mike Tyson didn't use yeah. that music. And you got to think as well, the, the the crowd could play a part of it, obviously with the chants as well. You know, they got into it, and it just, you know, the whole. Um... Basically, the whole arena was was into what was what was happening, and I think that's why they built him up coming out instead of having just you know run out to the ring, for instance. The whole build up, you know, was well at the time he probably couldn't wrestle a, a long match either, so the build up, you know, made it all for, as a spectacle as entertainment as well. Yeah, so like I said, it was like a real heavyweight champion, like a heavyweight boxer or an MMA fighter was coming to the ring for a huge, huge fight, and you just knew he's going to kick the other guy's ass when he was coming out. I really like that music. I think they overkilled it a bit towards the end because they just blasted the song. You no, know, the Goldberg chance when it was clear no one in the arena was chanting it, but when it first started off, I thought it was great. Yeah, I agree with you, there, mate. It was, it was the whole entrance, like you say, with a with a, someone goes and knocks on his dressing room door, and then he comes out like, right, it's business time. 
But they never explained why he had to have all the security, did they? Was, why was he having security? There was another time when some, he was, someone attacked him when he was on his way to the ring, and all the security guards just all ran away. <laughs> you got this big, intimidating, you know, huge guy who was like destroying everyone, and he's got about 20 guys security coming out to the ring. It, it didn't really make sense, but it, it worked. It just worked the way it yeah. did. It, just, it, just, it was all visual, wasn't it? It worked. All visual. Yeah. It just built up the, the, the drama, basically. But when you, you think, when you think they come out with in just like a pair of black shorts, do you know what I mean? Like a basic a wrestling attire, same as Stone Cold, other than his sort of like cheap looking snooker waistcoat that he that, that he had. Like he was just like black shorts, so they had no sort of like razzmatazz to them, did they? No. But the, but the but the theme song, as you say, you know. That that creates uh, atmosphere. It creates, yeah, it creates the whole persona and the whole, you know. But I think we, where, where WCW really led the way in that was they had like Michael Buffer doing the introductions for the big main events, and as Paul said, it was like a big boxing event, you know. And and instead of like Buffer just saying, you know, coming to the ring, you know, weighing two hundred eighty-five pounds, Goldberg. They'd have like, this pre-written out thing, you know, the master of the jackhammer, the man, who, you know, who strikes fear into the heart. And they'd, they'd have a massive build-up, like with the NWO now. You know, you, we, say Hulk Hogan coming out, you'd have all these ridiculous things that Buffer would say, you know, the, the biggest icon in wrestling, the man more famous than Elvis, you know, the the, the master of the um, leg drop, the, 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 the founder and, you know, of the NWO. The uh, you know and, and then the, the build up was just you know you played the heel and um, face cards well and it, it just added to the build up and with the NW I mean when that music hit you know even though there was baddies the crowd would all, all be into it you know yeah you got a favourite song Rocco well I said last week I mean I'm going to have to say Real American because you know as a kid I say I used to it used to get the old air standing up on the back of my neck and. I used to blast it out in my little Ford Escort and the post office van. You know, it, it was sort of like, it was iconic. Do you know what I mean? He was the sort of like biggest superhero and and it used to come out. But I used to like all of them. I mean, Warriors, you know, I'd convinced myself that Warriors was some sort of imitation of Blondie's Atomic. And, and I, I, I remember like searching to see if I could find a, a instrumental version of that to see if they they what do they call it not dubbed whether they'd um, sort of like stolen the beat off of there. But yeah, what, uh, I'd say I'd have to say Hogan um, song wise. Um, as again, because that one had words, whereas the likes of Warriors, Goldbergs, Austins didn't were just instrumental, weren't they? You got a favourite kid? It's, it's just um, it's hard to pick just one, isn't it? I mean, there's so many, there's so many, there's good ones, even the bad ones that are memorable. I mean, the Million Dollar Man's one for me. I mean, again, one that fits the character so well. When you know it starts off with a laugh. <laughs> got the little lyrics in it where he's just basically taking the piss out of everyone who's got no money because obviously this guy's a rich rich you know snob who looks down their nose at everyone 
you know, at the time as well, you, you, you're playing that heel character, you know, as soon as that music hits, I think, you know, the fans are obviously right on the, um, the booing and the thumbs down, and, and yeah, and I think Ted DiBiase has got one of them, them faces that you just, you know, you want to punch, to be honest, especially when he's playing that role as the, the hated guy, and, I mean, yeah, that's a good one. I think, do you remember Jake the Snake's one when he um, he turned heel and he was like, trust me, and it was like, he sounded a bit like something out of Blade Runner, from like, you know, an 80s sci-fi kind of thing, but again, that was um, something that fit his character, I thought. Yeah, uh, all, all of them, Kurt, Million Dollar Man was brilliant. Jake the Snake's, Jake the Snake's, you know, original WWF one, you know, sort of like WrestleMania 6 and that was brilliant. Um, and then, as you say, the, the trust me. What about Mr. Perfect? Did anyone like that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. That's another theme where it's like a king is walking to the ring, isn't it? I used to get the same impression with Andy Savage's one when he came out to that. It was like the king and queen were coming to court, him and Elizabeth, and you got the same impression with Mr. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. i tell you what, one was really good, and I think it's one that, at the time, the, and you talk about entrances as well. Do you remember Gangrels, the vampire? That was, like the, that was, the, the that film, was creepy. The, yeah, a bit from the film, like The Lost Boys with Keeper Sutherland. You know, he'd come out, the music was, was brilliant. You know, they had all the lighting, like red and everything, and then he'd, he'd spit the, the apparent blood all over himself and into the crowd. I think that, you know, that was when... That was probably the last of the uh, the time, anyway, when the, the music was really good. I thought it slowly declined, but you know the I think you know the early nineties. I think it was good, and the late nineties. I think it started to maybe not put as much effort into the, the, the themes as such. Maybe looked at other aspects of the character. But for me, yeah, the, that that was a really good one, and you know you knew with the entrance going with it as well. I think that makes it all different. So you've got some guys who just walk out to the ring, but when you've got something to add to it, it just makes it more for the fans, I think. Yeah. In terms of just pure comedy, because there's been a lot of funny entrances, can anything even come close to the ass man? I don't think so, to be honest. I know it sounds it sounds really, really um, homosexual, but when that music used to come on, I used to just laugh my bollocks off because it was, just, it was so weird. As... as- uh, Billy Gunn actually like been asked about what he thought about that, or did he take it as a rib, or was he was he happy with it? Because it just seems like it was a bit of a piss take, to be honest. <laughs> I wouldn't like it as my entrance music, like because I think it would give people the wrong idea. But it really used to just <laughs> make me howl, and that would come on well, every it, time it would start. Yeah, because I've, I've seen interviews with him, and he seems like the guy who like you know plus play jokes, maybe jokes on him, and I just think that could be like a bit of a. a his take to be honest and obviously he went with it but I mean yeah it was a, a catchy theme tune I mean it's one of those ones where you hear it and you'd be you know you'd be whistling to it or singing it later on you wouldn't really want to be caught singing that though Kurt would you like you wouldn't want to oh. be but in the shower where you're so singing, yeah. ass man Mm-mm. you know what I liked about it as well was they clearly made a load of effort when making it because a lot of songs are just repetitive, like it's maybe one verse and then it just repeats over and over again. Whereas that song had three verses and a chorus and a guitar solo and everything. They should they should have just brought it out as a chart topper. I'd have bought it. No shame yeah. in a bit. 
better than some of the shit in the charts nowadays. Jesus Christ. But if you think, I mean, I don't know what like you said about him, you know, whether he was happy to do it, but <clears throat> his shorts also had Mr. Arse and they had a big pair of lips on the bum, didn't they? And then, yeah. if you remember, <clears throat> if you remember Billy and Chuck, when he teamed up with Chuck Palumbo, they they done like a gay angle, didn't they? Where, do you remember where Eric Bischoff was going to marry them and yeah. all that? So you do wonder whether there was any... Like I'm not saying he not saying he was gay, but whether there was any rumours that you know, so they sort of like took the opportunity to probably, probably. But what about? I mean, a, a really funny entrance. What about Mister McMahon's no chance in hell with a walk as well? I mean, when he was really um, at his best, I'd say in the like late late nineties with Austin, when that music would hit, he'd do his his weird walk and. Yeah, I just think that that worked. I mean, you know, because that's what it, that's what he basically was. If he was, you know, in the storyline, if if he was against you, you had no chance in hell of basically getting to the top because he would do everything in his power to stop you. And I just think that's another one that that really fits his character. And then when they um he went, he, the corporation joined. Remember the Undertaker and had like a corporate ministry theme. I thought that worked well as well. Yeah, he's just a perfect pantomime buddy, isn't he, Vince man? Have you seen him on the front of what's it, um, Muscle and Fitness this week? Yeah, Paul. Is that Photoshop though? That picture because that them arms look—they don't look like seventy-year-old man's arms. They, they, they—you know—he looks like E-Man. <laughs> well, he's got enough money to buy anything he wants. Jesus, I mean, like all of them you've just said were, were spot on. I mean, I. I and I, you know, um, I quite liked the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. I mean, the character, apparently that character, though, like because he'd been like, um, he'd been like top dog in NWA, like previously with Ric Flair, he'd been like brilliant. But when they brought him in, in sort of like 89, 90 in WWE, they had him wearing polka dots and, and dancing around with Sapphire. You know, and they, they made him into, I mean, you wonder how they convinced him to, you know, because they were basically sort of like taking the to, taking the piss out of him. But that's theme song. I like I liked that one. And um, Boss Man, Big Boss Man. Yeah, that. Was, that like a, was that like a security theme? Oh, no, it was, <laughs> you better take your trip down the top county, Georgia. <laughs> what, what about some really like just waste of time ones like you know like diesel's one where it was just a, a truck just revving up or bam bam's it was just bam bam the whole way through that's all it was you just just all the um who were the guys who came out in the suits and they would um they'd like stop like the, stop all the, the women being naked it was just like, like an alarm sen- going like off. the sensor <laughs> To be fair, though, when that music would come on, the crowd would go absolutely mental. They'd boo the guys. Yeah, they were hated, weren't they? They were a parody of the PTC, which is the Parent Television Council in America, which is basically like their media regulator. Whereas if something's on TV that like breaks the broadcast rules, the PTC will get on your back about it. And they were getting on WWF's back about the naked women matches and stuff like that. So WWF quite cleverly just decided to parody it. 
and put all the guys who were previously the characters who the PTC were complaining about, like Val Venus and the Godfather, all these characters that were meant to be degrading women, basically just made them do a complete 180 and made them as really annoying um, censorship guys. I just mentioned like Val Venus and Godfather. That they had two good themes as well. Oh, Val, v- Val Venus has got the best Titantron I've ever seen. Hello, ladies. There was a Titantron more than anything. It was. It was just like, uh, like. Someone screwing an owl into a lot of hole and things like that, weren't a hot it? Hot dog cooking, um, <laughs> a flower blossoming, him with a purple helmet standing up outside of a bush. There's another one. Um, he'd be in a hot tub and he'd like, be pulling a sex face. <laughs> Stuff like that. It was just amazing. <laughs> As I said earlier on, your theme can really make or break the character. It can decide whether you care about that guy or not. And- I would never turn over when Valvinus would come on, or the Ass Man, do you know what I mean? I'd never go to the room, because I knew they were going to do something funny. But Valvinus, he's got the best Titantron. If you go back and see it, it's like oil sprinkling outside of the ground, like an oil leak, hot dogs cooking, um, a water hose spraying water. <laughs> <coughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, such good t- times, and I mean, the themes, yeah, you know, I'm not saying they don't compare the day, but it, it, I think that Jim Johnson geezer who seems to have written every single one. Um, he's just stopped trying, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think he's, I think he's, um, I think he has, but I mean, even the old um, themes for the pay-per-views, the old SummerSlam and WrestleMania theme. Yeah, they, I like the Royal Rumbles. They were cool. With the, with the bricks, curse, curse. Yeah, like, yeah. They, they, the Royal Rumble. That was a classic one. And the old WrestleMania one, not not the first few. Sort of like WrestleMania seven and eight. That one. Dun, 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 dun. That one. That that was. They used to they used to buy like real songs and have them be the theme song, didn't they? Like I think they had "My Way" by Limp Biscuits as a WrestleMania. I think they had. Um, Another song for like a certain SummerSlam. I can't remember. They do that every event, even now. They have like an official song, but it don't always. Yeah, it's just some cheap they... ass thing now. Yeah, they they some do. Something that paid 50p to use. Something that paid 50p to use. But I mean, on the subject, I mean, themes are, but, and I think it's widely recognised that they do do the best WWF, WWE have always done the best sort of like montages set to music. You know, promos. Promos. Videos. Yeah, things like I mean even the, the the Randy Savage and Elizabeth when they got married their wedding song. I mean I've still I've got that on my iPad now. I wanted that as my rest my wedding song, but you couldn't get it at the time. It was pre internet. I think yeah, I think for the uh, most part, WWE did better songs than WCW. I mean, if you ever get a chance, go and listen to Chris Benoit's WCW um, theme. It was like some 70s porno. It was really cheesy and cheap. It sounded like it was put together by, you know, 
some kid just on a laptop quickly. You know, it was just horrible. But I think the one thing they obviously the NWR they did really well with. But I think Sting's comeback, you know, the crow character when he had the, the montage with the, the kid at the start yeah. talking, you know, I think that worked really well because that was like a creeping. It was like it fit the character, it fit the storyline, it fit who he was at the time and the build up to when he was coming back. I think that was, um, yeah. Apart from the NWO, that I think that the, the Sting theme when he returned was their their best yeah. theme to be honest. That really because the. the with Ric Flair's, it was a great theme, but he, that was what he always had. But with Sting's, they actually re they done it to to fit him at that time, and I think that where WWE was so good at that, I think WCW showed that they could do it as well in that instance. Yeah. See, I liked I liked the old themes, uh, the old Sting theme tune from sort of like early nine ninety ninety one. Back when he looked like Bart Simpson. Yeah, when 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 but when he was had all the face paint on that 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 theme song, it was a bit it, dun dun dun. It was it was it was you know, I think it was good. And Lex Luger as well at the time. You were like safer songs, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I tell you, his, his theme was really good, and it really fit the character. And probably his real life persona as well. Psycho Sids, do you remember that one? And he had the actual um. You know, like the um, it was a bit of a rip off from the movie Psycho, where it had the um, where the knife would would stab dun, and it had those dun, little screechy dun, noises. Done, done. It, 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 that, yeah. that was just uh, that just fit the, the character really well, and that's that's a theme that's always been a favourite of mine, Psycho Sids, and you know that even though he was supposed to be a baddie, I think it it made him just a bit more cooler, and people cheered for him as well, and that theme just it. I think that was one of the ones that really stood out at the time, which was around what ninety six, I'd say. Do you think that did you, did any of you like Bret Hart's theme? So not not the Hart Foundation, like you know. Oh, you mean the the, the the guitar riff, da, 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 yeah. like that. It, it was all right for a time, but it's not a very it's not a very Creative, exciting no. one, is it? No. At least not a very exciting guy, is he? He's a great wrestler, yeah. but he's got the personality of like a pencil, hasn't he? So. He's got the personality of Paul Smith. No, don't don't talk down to Bret Hart like that. <laughs> but, but I wonder whether that's why he didn't. In that mid nineties, when when Hogan left and he was sort of like given the belt and he was pushed as the top guy for a couple of years, that sort of like ninety two, ninety three, up to sort of ninety six. You know, I wonder. I'm not saying the music. I'm not saying only the music, but the music does define the character and. You know, you hear the music, and I wonder whether that music was a big enough pull, you know, to if it's like like the Austin one when it, it didn't get know, anyone excited. It didn't get anyone excited when he heard it, did he? That's what I mean, Paul. That's what I mean, mate. It's, you know, <clears throat> whereas Austin's, I mean, obviously he was having the McMahon, the Austin McMahon era, but. You heard his music, like you said earlier, McMahon's just fitted like a glove for his character and Austin's for his character. You couldn't imagine, if you try to imagine now Stone Cold Steve Austin coming out to John Cena's music, it wouldn't look right. Do you know what I mean? But well, remember when he when he first came to WWF, he was the ringmaster and he had that really crappy music. And then he didn't fit him. He needed something that was going to be quick, instant and um, get the crowd, you know, up at their feet. And, when he, his music reminded me of, remember the Lex Luger when he was the narcissist? It was really a, a slow, you know, 
just didn't fit a, a, a character like him, you know, an intimidating guy who, you know, wouldn't take shit. He needed this, something, you know, that make a noise quickly. And I think, obviously, the glass smashing is, they got it exactly right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Rock Rock's song has changed slightly. <clears throat> Same song, but it's changed slightly a few times over the years, hasn't it? Um, but it was basically just a li- it was basically just hit little clips from his promos that he said with just a little beat underneath, wasn't it? The Rock says, "The Rock says, know your role, Jabroni." It would say stuff like that, and it'd have like a little song going underneath. But, but now it's if you smell, and then it would, you know, it just would on it. its own, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know what do you prefer, Paul. What one did you do? Can you? Uh, I prefer the I prefer the old one, the one he had when he was in the corporation, where it would say, "Do you smell what the rock is cooking?" And then as the song would be playing, there'd be little little ex- excerpts of what he said in promos, like the rock's laying the smackdown. The rock says. The Rock says, know your damn role, as the music's playing. Another one who's had a few, and I actually um, like quite a few of them, is Triple H. I mean, if you remember his original one when he came in as like the, the posh guy, I mean, that was that was terrible. It was funny, but terrible. But he had one, I think, when he... I'd say when he made his first push yeah, to the it title, it was some, I think it was called the Chris Warren Band, the band he had when he was with DX. Yeah, all. I think that one was a really good... That one was really good. Then he went to like the the King of Kings one, which I think is good as well. But I always preferred like the nineteen ninety nine version. But yeah, he's had a few different variation ones, and you know I think that suits him as well. And I think that's that's a good theme as well. But he's yeah, if you remember his original one, you know the the blue blood character, yeah. it was just it was pathetic. Well, he loves Motorhead, doesn't he? And I think he just he, yeah. if he's gonna be allowed to have Motorhead as his entrance, he's gonna do it, isn't he? So they they did sing him out a uh, 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 didn't they? Sang him out at two, WrestleMania 17 and WrestleMania 21, I think, when he fought Batista. And I remember the 17 one, I remember. Yeah. And for one of them, I remember Lemmy, the vocalist, was just really, really drunk, was messing up the words. What about CM Punk's one, Cult of Personality, just for a recent? Did anyone it's, like that? It, it suits him. I like the song in general. It definitely suits his character. Which is basically just a loud mouth who does whatever he wants, sort of thing, and doesn't care who he's going to upset. It'll be interesting because now he's going to UFC. I wonder whether he'll use that as his entrance music. I hope he does. I, I, I hope so. I, I hope so. I still think he's going to get his face smashed in in UFC, personally, but it'll still be good to see him come out to the music and give us a bit of a. I think he'll have to because at the end of the day, He's UFC are trying to get his fans from WWE to come and watch him in UFC now, aren't they? So if he comes out to a different entrance music, people are not going to recognise it, are they? No. Brock Brock Lesnar obviously didn't come out to his WWE music, but his WWE music is just rubbish. So do you not like his fame? Do you not? No, not really. I think it's just bland. It is. Yeah, I agree with you. Have you seen them videos on YouTube where people have got married? And they've they've come in to their reading reception to WWE themes. Have you no. seen it? No, no. There's quite a few, right? There's quite a few, and there's... I really hope no one used "I'm an ass man." I think his wife would be very, very upset. That's the case. 
Well, uh, there's there's a few. I mean, I take it they're all American. They look American, but there's 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 um there's a few. I'll try and post some up uh, on on our Twitter page. There's one I remember where different people come into different themes, and I think it's the father-in-law comes into the million-dollar man's theme, and he's got like monopoly money, and he's throwing it about as he comes in. Only in America. Oh, it's, it's quality, though. I, I don't think my missus would have that, though. She, she wouldn't have read that. She wouldn't have suffered that. Well, it's been a good laugh. Uh, remember to follow us at The Wrestling Asylum on Twitter, at Wrestling Podcast. If you just Google it, it should come up. We've got a Facebook page now as well, The Wrestling Asylum again. If you want to get in touch with us, ask us any questions, just send us a tweet or send us a message on Facebook. Thanks for listening. We'll be available on iTunes and at wrestlingasylum.tumblr, I think it is. So thanks for listening, guys. Hope you've enjoyed it.